Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 1, the word of God says this. And as they, and the they here is referring to Peter and John, and as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and a number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is a stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Women and children and the unsaved onto the boats. Women and children and the unsaved onto the boats. These were the words shouted by the Baptist preacher on the Titanic. His name was John Harper. He was traveling to the United States with his six-year-old daughter. And as the Titanic started to sink, he put his daughter on a lifeboat, saw her go away, saw her for the last time, and then he was heard screaming at the top of his lungs, saying, women and children and the unsaved onto the boats. He had just seen his daughter for the last time. Death was right in front of him. And all he wanted to do in this moment was to tell people about the Lord Jesus. And what he did is he went from person to person as the Titanic was sinking, pleading with the people there to turn to faith in Jesus. And as many of you know, the story of the Titanic, the Titanic would break apart into two pieces, causing about a 1,000 people or so to jump into the freezing cold Atlantic Ocean. John Harper was one of those who jumped into that ocean on that night. And you would think after jumping into the ocean that he would then stop telling people about Jesus, but that's not what happened at all. He grabbed a piece of wreckage and went from person to person in the ocean pleading with them, to turn to faith in Jesus Christ. Only a few people were pulled from those waters. One man who was pulled, he recounted a few years later what had happened. He said this. He said, I am a survivor of the Titanic. When I was drifting alone on a spar that awful night, the tide brought Mr. John Harper on a piece of wreck near me. Man, he said, are you saved? No, I said, I am not. John Harper replied, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. The waves bore him away but brought him back a little later. And he said, are you saved now? No, I said, I can't honestly say I am. John Harper said again, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And shortly after that, he went down. And there, alone in the night and with two miles of water under me, I believe, I am John Harper's last convert. 
You see, for a man like John Harper, spreading and preaching the gospel was more important than his own personal well-being. What we have here before us today in Acts chapter 4 is we have two men, Peter and John, who know that spreading and preaching the gospel is more important than their own personal well-being. And in order for us to understand what's going on here in Acts 4, we have to go back to Acts 3. So at the beginning of Acts chapter 3, what happens is we're introduced to a lame man. We're introduced to a crippled man, a man who has never walked before, a man who has been lame since birth. And this man, he sees Peter and John walking towards him, and he asks them for money. And then Peter replies to this man in Acts chapter 3, verse 6. Peter says, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. So God heals this man through Peter. A miracle has just taken place. This man gets up, starts sleeping, and praising God. And as a result of this miracle that's just happened, a crowd begins to form around this man. And then Peter, he sees a crowd form, and he uses this as another opportunity to preach the gospel to this crowd that has formed. And he's incredibly bold in doing so. He tells the crowd that they are the ones who delivered over the Lord Jesus. He tells the crowd that they are the ones that denied the Lord Jesus Christ. They are the ones that chose a murderer over the Lord Jesus. They are the ones who killed, who murdered the prince of life. They are the ones responsible for killing and crucifying the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we say that, we have to make something clear here, because there's a tendency in the sinful human heart to look at the crowd to whom Peter is preaching and to say, yeah, it's completely their fault. They're the ones who bear all of the responsibility. But you know which side we would have been on if we were alive during the trial of the Lord Jesus Christ? We would have been right there alongside all of those who are calling out for his execution. I love that hymn we just sang, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, because in it there's always that one verse that gets me where it says, Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. That would have been us if we were alive during the trial of the Lord Jesus. You know what the difference is between us and those who are calling out for the crucifixion of Jesus? It's one word, grace. Grace is the difference. See, if it wasn't for his grace, if we were alive during that time, 100% we would have been right there next to them saying, crucify Jesus, crucify Jesus. And what a reminder that is to us. What a reminder it is to constantly, constantly praise God for his grace, specifically for his children, specifically for those who are his, who have been born again by his grace. So Peter and John, the end of Acts 3, they preach the gospel, and then here's what the text tells us next. Here's what happens after the beginning of Acts chapter 4, the first three verses of it. It says this. It says, and as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So Peter and John, they're arrested. And they're arrested for preaching the gospel, and they're arrested for preaching the resurrection from the dead. And the Sadducees, these... People who are referenced here in verse 1, they were powerful men who made up the majority of the Sanhedrin. 
And the one thing that they are fundamentally against, no matter what, is the proclamation of the resurrection from the dead. So not only do the Sadducees hate and despise Jesus, but they also hate and despise any talk of the resurrection from the dead. So when Peter and John are preaching to the people about the resurrected Christ, about this Jesus who rose from the dead victoriously, the Sadducees will have none of it. And they arrest Peter and John, and they put them into jail. And when they did that, when the Sadducees did that, they must have thought to themselves, they must have thought that they had just stopped the gospel. That's what they must have thought. But look at what it says in verse 4. Verse 4 says this. It says, But many of those who had heard the word believed, and a number of men came to about 5,000. So despite arresting Peter and John, despite them being arrested, the gospel still went forth. You know, you would think, you would think that persecution and jail time, you would think that these two things would stop the gospel, but it doesn't stop the gospel. The gospel is unstoppable. It cannot be stopped. You can try and try to stop it. You can get the smartest people in a room, people with IQs over 230. You could lock them in a room. You could give them the most advanced technology that man has ever come up with. And you could say, come up with plans to stop the gospel. And they could come up with 5,000 plans to stop it. And every single one of those plans will fail miserably. You cannot stop it. It cannot be stopped. No scheme of man can stop it. No pandemic can stop the gospel. No government policy can stop the gospel. Imagine if we were to wake up tomorrow and the United States government passes a law that says it is now illegal to believe the gospel. It is now illegal to preach the gospel. You know what would happen? The gospel would still be unstoppable. And not only is that a tremendous encouragement to us here today in Matawan, New Jersey in 2021, it was a tremendous encouragement to the apostles that they could stand before the most powerful men in the entire nation and not be afraid, knowing full well that this gospel that they preach is unstoppable. Text goes on in verses 5 through 7, and it says this. It says, On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? So this Annas and Caiaphas, referenced here in verse 6, these are the same to Annas and Caiaphas that presided over the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. And they, along with John and Alexander and others of the high priestly family, they bring Peter and John before them and they ask them, how did you do this? How is it that you healed this lame man? How did you heal this crippled man who has never walked before? How did you do it? Think for a second. Think for a second about the temptation here before Peter and John. The temptation in this moment to glorify themselves here. They could easily respond to that question by saying, how did we do this? Well, it was all us. We're the ones who have this great power in ourselves to heal people. We're the ones who have the ability to do this. What great temptation here to glorify themselves. What great temptation here to exalt themselves. What an opportunity to build their brand. But they don't do that. You know, this is one of the things that you see with the apostles. 
is that any time when they're tempted with exalting and glorifying themselves, they immediately shut that down. And instead, they tell the people, you need to exalt and glorify God. Contrast that line of thinking with how others in the book of Acts responded when they were tempted with being exalted, tempted with glorifying themselves. You think, for example, in Acts chapter 12, what happens there is Herod, he gives a speech. And after giving this speech, the people in the crowd, they start to chant. They say, the voice of a God and not a man, the voice of a God and not a man. And what does Herod do? He takes that glory, he takes that exaltation. And you know what God does? God strikes him dead immediately, and he's eaten by worms. And then only two chapters after that, in Acts chapter 14, you see Paul and Barnabas, they're tempted with this. They go into Lystra, and Paul, he heals a lame man, kind of similar to what's happened in Acts chapter 3. And after healing this lame man in Lystra, the people come to Paul and Barnabas, and they attempt to worship Paul and Barnabas. They attempt to glorify them, to exalt them. And Paul, he shuts that down. He says, we're simply men like you guys. You need to worship the true God. You need to come to faith in a true God by coming to faith in his son. So they exalt God instead of exalting themselves. And here in Acts chapter 4, it's no different. Peter and John, given the opportunity to exalt themselves, they will have none of it. And instead, they exalt God. Specifically, they exalt God, the son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at what it says in verses 8 through 10. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders... If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. So remember what was asked. The question asked of Peter and John was back in verse 7, and that question was, how did you do this? How did you heal this lame man, this crippled man? And if you notice in Peter's response, he doesn't just say, well, we did this by the power of Jesus, right? He doesn't just say that, though that would have been a sufficient answer. He doesn't do that. Instead, what he does is he expounds and he uses this as another opportunity to share the gospel. You know, Peter and John, they are tremendous examples to us. They take every single opportunity that they get to share the gospel. And it's just natural for them to do this. It just comes naturally to them. We see this in Acts chapter 4, verses 19 and 20. They're basically told, hey, stop telling people about Jesus. And here's how they respond. It says, but Peter and John answered them, whatever is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They cannot help but to speak about it. They cannot help but to tell others about Jesus. And I hope, I hope as we're making our way through this, I hope that you are somewhat convicted because I know I am and I know I'm up here preaching to you guys, but in a lot of ways I'm preaching to myself also because my attitude, the inclinations of my heart needs to be that which says, I cannot but speak about the Lord Jesus Christ. That when I'm having conversations with unbelievers and I'm constantly bringing up the Lord Jesus and they say, hey, are you capable of talking about something else? I can say, yeah, I am, but I can't help but to tell you about Jesus. 
That needs to be the inclination of our heart. We need to be ready to do this. We need to be ready to seize every opportunity to tell others about Jesus. Peter tells them here in these three verses, he tells them that Jesus, Jesus is the one responsible for this lame man standing before them. You could imagine in your minds, could imagine in your minds the Sanhedrin being pretty upset with everything that's going on here. They're literally upset because a man who has never walked before is now healed and walking. They're fuming over the fact that Peter and John are preaching about the resurrected Christ. They're fuming over the fact that the gospel is being successful. And then Peter continues here in verse 11, and you just get a sense of their, their blood boiling up. In verse 11, Peter says this. He says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. So this Jesus, not a different Jesus, this Jesus, the one whom you crucified, the one whom God raised from the dead, this Jesus, he's the cornerstone. He's the one prophesied about in the Old Testament. What Peter is doing here in verse 11 is Peter is telling these men who... No doubt, many of them have the entire Bible memorized. Peter is telling them that Psalm 118 is about the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who fulfills Psalm 118, which says the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, has now become the cornerstone. Jesus is the one who fulfills that. The picture given there in Psalm 118, this is the stone which has now become the cornerstone. If you could think of it in your mind, you could maybe picture, think about workers on a construction site, and these workers on a construction site, they're attempting to build a building, and they're looking for various stones to use to support the structure of this building. And they see this stone, and they look at it, and they cast it off. They deem it to be unfit. But then a few minutes later, after doing that, the chief builder arrives on the scene, the one who knows more about construction than all of them put together. And he sees that stone that they cast off, and he looks at it, and he not only deems it to be fit, he deems it to be the most fit out of any stone he's ever seen in his entire life. And he takes that stone, and he makes it into the foundation, the anchor, the chief cornerstone of the entire structure. Guys, that's who Jesus is. Jesus is the anchor. He's the foundation. He's the chief cornerstone of it all. He's the anchor, the foundation, the chief cornerstone of the church. He's the anchor, the foundation, the chief cornerstone of the people of God. And as the chief cornerstone, the Lord Jesus Christ is the only way, the only way in which anyone can be saved. So what Peter's going to get at in verse 12, he says this, he says, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when we see this verse here, Verse 12 of Acts 4, our minds should immediately go to what the Lord Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, where there Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. About five years ago, I was having a conversation with this guy, and I quoted to him John chapter 14, verse 6. It said, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And after I was done quoting that to him, this woman who had happened to be in the room at the same time, she shouts from across the room. Now, I'd never met this woman, never spoken to her, didn't even know her name. She shouts from across the room. 
And she says, that's how you interpret the text. And I said, technically, I didn't interpret anything. Like, I quoted it word for word. So there was no interpretation happening. And she goes, well, I don't agree. And we had some dialogue back and forth, and she eventually stormed out of the room. And I look back on this conversation, I think to myself, I should have been more gracious to this woman. But I'll never forget when she left, I thought to myself, and I said, what was it that I said that caused her to get so upset? Like, I didn't even know her name prior to this, never spoke to her ever before. Well, you know why she was so upset? She was upset over what the Bible says about salvation. She was upset over the exclusive nature of salvation. John chapter 14, verse 6, our verse here today, Acts 4, verse 12, these verses deal with the doctrine known as the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. What do we mean when we say that? Well, what we mean is that Jesus is the only way in which anyone can be saved, that there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Jesus, Jesus is the way. Faith in Christ and Christ alone. He's the only way. Now, inevitably, when we proclaim the exclusivity of Jesus, when we tell people that the only way they can be reconciled to God is by faith alone in Christ alone, inevitably, people respond with objections. And there are many objections that people have with this message. So people will say, well, if you proclaim the exclusivity of Jesus... If you say Jesus is the only way in which anyone can be saved, well, you're being closed-minded and arrogant. But it's not closed-minded and arrogant to tell somebody the truth. And it's certainly not closed-minded and arrogant for us as Christians to say, look, I'm no smarter than you are. The only reason I believe this is because of the sovereign grace of God. And it's certainly not closed-minded and arrogant to say and to believe Apart from Jesus, I am nothing. So it's not closed-minded and arrogant. Other times people will say, well, if you proclaim the exclusivity of Jesus, if you do that, if you say Jesus is the only way, well, you aren't being inclusive and you aren't being tolerant. And in a way, I mean, they're actually correct, right? Because wrapped up in a doctrine known as the exclusivity of Jesus is the fact that it's not inclusive, Right? It's not tolerant of different viewpoints. You know, nowhere, nowhere in Scripture are we told to be inclusive and tolerant of things that contradict the Scriptures. Okay? Nowhere are we told to do that. Now, we're supposed to be kind and gracious towards people, absolutely, but nowhere are we told to be inclusive and tolerant of things that contradict what the Bible says. And we certainly aren't to be inclusive and tolerant of differing views on who the Lord Jesus Christ is. Other times people will say, well, if you proclaim the exclusivity of Jesus, if you say Jesus is the only way in which anyone can be saved, well, you aren't loving people by telling them that they're wrong. And the reality is, is that it's literally the exact opposite, right? The most loving thing that we can do for anybody is tell them the good news of Jesus. Tell them the exclusivity of Jesus. The exclusivity of Jesus, by the way, is the reason why we support missions. If the exclusivity of Jesus wasn't true, then it would make supporting missions futile. It would be pointless. It would be a complete waste of our money. And if the exclusivity of Jesus wasn't true, you know what it would do? It would make God a liar because he clearly, clearly testifies in his word 
that salvation is found through Christ and Christ alone, that he's the only way in which anyone can be saved. Now, this brings up the question, and you may have wondered this, what happens to those people who die and never hear the gospel? What happens to those who die and never hear about Jesus? What happens to them? And it's a legitimate question. It's a genuine question. Sometimes the question is posed this way. The question is, what happens to that good man on a secluded island who has never heard the gospel? Because surely a good God would not send the good man on the island who has, who has never heard. Surely God wouldn't send that person to hell all because he hasn't heard. Well, before we even answer a question like that, we need to acknowledge a few things. First thing we need to acknowledge is that questions like that carry with them the presupposition that there is such a thing as a good man on a secluded island who hasn't heard the gospel. There is no such thing, okay? Romans chapter 3, verse 10 says this. It says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one is good. That includes those on secluded islands who've never heard the gospel. That includes people born in Matawan, New Jersey. None is good. None is righteous. No, not one. Second thing we need to acknowledge is that one sin, one sin is punishable by eternal destruction in hell forever. One sin. So is that person, that man on a secluded island who has never heard the gospel, is he guilty of the sin of rejecting the gospel? Well, no, because he hasn't ever heard the gospel, right? So he's not guilty of that sin. But is he guilty of other sins? Is he guilty of sinning against the holy and just and perfect God of the universe? Absolutely he is. Absolutely. Now, I say that, and maybe you're thinking, maybe you're wondering, was there any hope at all for those people? Is there any hope at all for those who haven't heard of Jesus? And the answer is yes. Their hope is our hope. Our hope is the exclusivity of Jesus. Their hope is the exclusivity of Jesus. This message of the exclusivity of Jesus, it applies to everybody, everywhere who has ever existed. And this is the reason why missionaries go out. Missionaries go out because the exclusivity of Jesus is true, and it applies to everybody. Some of you may remember almost exactly three years ago, the story of the missionary John Allen Chow. John Allen Chow was a missionary who in November 2018, he went to the North Sentinel Island, which is an island about 700 miles off the coast of India. And he went to the North Sentinel Islanders, to this tribe that has been called the most dangerous tribe in the entire world. So he goes there in November 2018, and his journals, which we have now, show that he was a man deeply, deeply affected by the exclusivity of Jesus. He knew that Christ is the only way in which these people can be saved. He says, he says in his journals, he says, this is not a pointless thing what I'm doing. The eternal lives of this tribe are at stake. So November 2018, John Allen Chow, he lands on North Sentinel Island, and within minutes of landing on this island, he was brutally killed by the North Sentinel Islanders. And if you remember the story, the media picked up and ran with this story. It made national headlines. It made really worldwide head headlines. And the media tried to portray John Allen Chow as this evil and awful Christian man. 
They engaged in things that can only be described as slander because they said things about him. They said, who did he think he was? He wasn't even prepared to go to this tribe. And then in the weeks that followed, it turned out that if anything, he was overly prepared to go to this tribe that he had been preparing for years to go specifically to this group of people. But the media, the media even tried to pretend that the only reason why the North Sentinel Islanders brutally murdered John Allen Chow was because they were afraid of the infectious diseases that he would bring with him. And then you do some research on the tribe, and it turns out they don't even know how to create fire, but the media would have you and I believe that they know all about how diseases transmit from one person to another. But the New York Times, the New York Times ran with this, this story, and what the New York Times did is they published a memo to missionaries around the world, and they said, hey, if you're a missionary, please write into us, tell us what you think the death of John Allen Chow. And I'm putting missionaries in quotes. You're going to see why in a second. So missionaries wrote in to the New York Times, and the New York Times published an article titled Missionaries on the Death of John Allen Chow. Subheading to this article was this. Some of the missionaries were disturbed, disturbed by what Chow had done, One of the missionaries who wrote into New York Times, he had this to say. He said, I went through extensive training on cultural competency, post-colonial theory, and faith-rooted organizing. I was not there to save souls or to convert people, but was instead sent to live in solidarity with marginalized communities while working for holistic systemic reform. I think Chow's decision was uninformed, arrogant, and self-serving. Never forget... May and I, we were reading this New York Times article together, and we came to this point in the article, and we look up at each other almost at the exact same time, and we're like, this guy's a missionary who wrote into the New York Times. Then I looked about two lines down, and it said missionary with the United Methodist Church. And I thought to myself, I said, unfortunately, that makes sense, because so many in that denomination have completely abandoned the gospel. Because let's be real, this guy who wrote into the New York Times is not a missionary, right? He's somebody who wanted to go somewhere and do nice things for people. It's not what a missionary is. But the consensus from the world was that John Allen Chow failed miserably and didn't accomplish anything. Even some professing Christians criticized him for going to this tribe, which prompted the Babylon Bee, which may be the best website on the internet, prompted the Babylon Bee uh, to publish an article titled, Man Who Has Never Shared Jesus With Anybody, criticizes slain missionaries' lack of wisdom. But the consensus from the world was that he failed, didn't accomplish anything. So is that true? Well, aside from the fact that as a result of him going to the North Sentinel Islanders, you now had literally millions of Christians around the world praying specifically by name for the North Sentinel Islanders to come to faith in Jesus. So aside from that, you had others like myself who were deeply, deeply impacted by this man's story. I saw a man who at the time was two years younger than myself. He was 26 years old at the time, and I was 28 at the time. And I saw a man so bold, so courageous in his desire to make Christ known that he literally went to the most dangerous tribe in the entire world to tell them about Jesus. And yet here I am in New Jersey, in America, And I want to look for excuses not to tell others about Christ. So it encouraged me big time, encouraged me to be more courageous, encouraged me to be bolder in proclaiming Christ. 
And the reality is, is we all need to be bold. We all need to be more courageous in telling others about Jesus. Why? Why must we do so? Well, it's because eternal lives are at stake. Eternal lives are at stake. And we need to tell people about Jesus because eternal lives are at stake. You know, sometimes, sometimes when you go out evangelizing, people will say, why, why are you doing this? Why are you out here telling me this? And oftentimes the response that we give, and there's nothing wrong with this response, but oftentimes the response that we give is, well, we're commanded by Jesus to go and do this, which is very true, right? The Bible is clear about that. But that's not the only reason why we do that. So not the only reason why we go out and evangelize. We go out and evangelize because it's glorifying to God. It's glorifying to God to proclaim Christ in the midst of the pagans. It's glorifying to God to proclaim salvation that's found in Christ and Christ alone. It's glorifying to God to do that. And let me encourage you guys in here. You, believer, if you've been born again by the grace of God, you absolutely have the ability to do this. You absolutely have the ability to tell others about Christ. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, maybe you're saying, yeah, you know, I've heard this before. I've heard it from this pulpit over and over and over again. And I agree, but you know what? I just can't do it. Well, no, you can do it. You can do it. Young people in the room, maybe you're thinking to yourself, thinking, I'm in agreement, but you know what? I am just too young to do this. Well, keep in mind, here in Acts chapter 4, Peter is probably in his early 20s, maybe mid-20s. John is most likely still a teenager. Maybe he's like 18 or 19 years old at the oldest. So age is no excuse not to do this. And you know, there will always be excuses. There will always be excuses that we could come up with not to tell others about Jesus. And there will always be the temptation to fear man, and that's normal. And let me tell you, if that's the case with you, if you have that temptation of fearing man, pray. Pray and ask God. Say, God, help me to love you and to fear you. Help me, Lord, not to fear man. Help me, God, to love my neighbor in the best possible way that I can, which is by telling them about Jesus. So if that's you, pray. Pray that God would take that fear away. And there is a joy, there is a great joy that comes from sharing the gospel with others. It is awesome. It's fun to go out and to tell others about Jesus. And it's also one of the only things that we could do now that brings exceeding glory to God that we won't be able to do in heaven because obviously in heaven you can't evangelize anybody. So everybody there already knows Jesus. But you could do it here and now. And it's a privilege, and we ought not to take this privilege for granted. It's the most important thing in the world. The most important thing in the world is telling others about Jesus. It's more important than finding a cure for cancer. It's more important than finding a cure for any other disease you could think of. More important than all of that is telling people the gospel, telling them to come to faith in Jesus. And we go out and we tell people this message. We tell them that they're under the wrath of God because of their sin. We tell them that right now in their unconverted state, they are enemies of God, and God would be perfectly just to strike them down dead in this moment and to send them to hell forever. That's how serious sin is in his sight. But then we tell them the good news of the gospel. 
We tell them that God didn't just leave us in that state, that God the Father sent God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, came down here willingly, lived a righteous, perfect, faithful, and obedient life, and then he went to a cross. And what happened on the cross was the wrath of God that you and I deserve for our sins was poured out upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the Lord Jesus, he died on that cross, and he rose again three days later, affirming every single thing that he said would happen. And the Bible makes it so, so, so simple. Believe in Jesus. It's so simple. So we go out and we proclaim this message. You know what it's similar to? Going out and telling people about Jesus, the joy that comes from telling people about Jesus. It's similar to the joy that you get coming to a prayer meeting at the church. Right? I know that this happens often. You make plans to come to prayer meeting on, say, Wednesday night. And throughout the course of the day on Wednesday, things aren't really going according to plan. Right? You think to yourself, it would probably be way easier if I just don't go. But then at the last second, you decide to go. You decide to go to prayer meeting. And you get to see your brothers and sisters in Christ. You get to encourage one another. You get to bear one another's burdens. You get to build up the saints. And you leave prayer meeting feeling amazing. Why? Well, it's because you took time out of your day to honor God, took time out of your day to be with your brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, no Christian, no Christian has ever left a prayer meeting and said, I am so mad that I prayed with my brothers and sisters in Christ. No Christian has ever said that. And likewise, no Christian, after sharing Jesus with somebody, has ever said, I am so upset that I shared Jesus with this person. No Christian has ever said that. And God has determined it to be that people will be saved by the means of somebody preaching the gospel to them. This happened to every single one of us in here who have been born again by his grace. Every single one of us in here who have been born again, the reason, the means that God used to save us was somebody preaching the gospel to us. And we should praise God for that. We should praise God that somebody was bold enough Somebody was courageous enough to tell us about Jesus. So we know firsthand the importance of this. We know firsthand the importance. And what we need to do is do what's been done for us. And that is go out to tell others about Jesus. We must tell others because salvation is found in nobody else. He's the only way. Let's pray together. God, we we thank you for our salvation. We thank you, Father, that you sent Jesus for us. Thank you, God, that you made a way to to reconcile sinners to yourself. Just how amazing that is. We don't deserve a way, and yet you you made a way. God, we know that the the fact that you made even one way shows how gracious you are. So God, I pray we don't take our salvation for granted. I pray, God, that you, you forgive us. Forgive me, Lord, for those times that I've had perfect opportunities to share the gospel, to tell others about your son, Father, and I don't take them. Pray, God, you forgive me for that. Pray, Lord, you forgive us for that. Pray, God, that there would be a, a deeper burden on all of our hearts to tell others about, about the Lord Jesus. God, I pray that for us. I pray, Lord, that, that we would be known in this community as a church that is constantly going out, constantly telling people about Jesus. 
God, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you, God, for, for sending Jesus for us and for, for saving us through his life, death, and resurrection. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.